If you would, take your Bibles to Isaiah chapter number 48. Isaiah 48, and I may not always be listened to, but I'm going to prompt people forward. Uh, I like to feel like community and not like uh, distant strangers. So as we stand in a moment to read, if you're sitting in the back half of the room, I encourage you to move up to the front half of the room. If you have a health concern and need to stay put, we understand. Isaiah 48, marching through the book of Isaiah, verse by verse, line upon line, precept upon precept. Once you've found that chapter, please stand for the reading of God's Word. We'll be looking at verse 4, and then we'll skip down and read verse 9 through 11. Here the Lord is speaking to His people Israel through the prophet Isaiah. Verse 4, because I knew that thou art obstinate. You know what that means? That means hard-headed. Stubborn. Anybody here stubborn? Anybody here obstinate? All right. Because I knew that thou art obstinate, and thy neck is an, is, is an iron sinew, and thy brows brass, brow brass. So you get the idea here. God is dealing with a stubborn people. Look down at verse number 9. For my name's sake will I defer mine anger, and for my praise will I refrain uh, for thee, that I cut thee not off. Behold, I have refined thee, but not with silver. I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. For mine own sake, even for mine own sake will I do it. For how should my name be polluted, and I will not give my glory unto another. The title of the Bible study tonight is Chosen for the Furnace of Affliction. Chosen for the Furnace of Affliction. You ever felt like you were at a time in life where you were just in the furnace of affliction. Almost too hot for you to handle. And uh, Isaiah says here, God says through Isaiah to his people, I have placed you in the furnace of affliction. We're going to see why uh, here in a moment uh, and t- talk about when God puts us in that same place. Let's pray. Lord, help us tonight as we consider uh, the Bible, uh, the truths that are in it, Lord, as we seek to understand intellectually the passage, help us not to just leave with head knowledge, but, Lord, with our hearts challenged. Help us to leave with our hearts challenged to go forth, and, Lord, uh, to be like you. Give us hearts that are tender toward the Bible and toward truth. And, Lord, help us to love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I was talking to a pastor friend of mine recently, and he was asking me about my work history and some of the places that I've been. And lo and behold, his son had worked in one of the same ministries I had worked in. He came years after I did, and he and I have not even met each other, but had worked in the same ministry and worked under the same man. In both instances, neither one of us had had a good experience. Both of us had left there on bad terms. And so as I talked to this pastor, and I shared with him the hardships that I had gone through in church ministry uh, there. Uh, He said to me this, he said, Pastor Lejeune, one thing I have learned after many years of ministry is that God generally does not use someone greatly until he's allowed them to be hurt deeply. Let me say that again. God generally doesn't use somebody greatly until he's allowed them to be hurt deeply. The term he used was thorn package. God has dialed up a thorn package. 
Paul said that I have a thorn in my flesh. And, uh, and, and God said, I'm not going to take that thorn away. My grace is sufficient. My grace is sufficient. Have, how many of you here have ever experienced a thorn package where you felt like you were being taken through a hard time? You were taken through a hard trial. And you wonder, God, if you're there, how could you let me endure? Why would you allow me to endure this? And so the furnace of affliction. Last week we looked at chapter 47. And uh, I preached a sermon, a, a fiery sermon, one of the most fiery sermons that I've ever preached uh, in my preaching uh, career. And uh, we looked at Babylon, how that Babylon was falling because of their love of pleasure and their love of iniquity and they're flaunting it in God's face. And God said, uh, Babylon, I'm go- I, I call you up and I'm going to put you down. And then God turns to His people, the Israelites, and He has a very strong admonition for them. He says that because of your hard-headedness, because of your hard hearts, I'm going to put you in the furnace of affliction and I'm going to refine you. I'm going to refine you. Let's look at five thoughts tonight out of Isaiah 48. Let's talk about the furnace of affliction. Number one, notice the Lord's foreknowledge. The Lord's foreknowledge. You have a bulletin there. Uh, Feel free to take notes as we go tonight and uh, use that to look back upon those notes and study the Bible deeper for yourself. Look at verse number three. We're going to look at verse one down through verse uh, number, I believe, number um, seven uh, under this point. But look at verse three and we'll get the idea of what's being said here. God says, I have declared from the former things. Look here. From the beginning, I have declared the former things. Okay, you have, let me just interpret this here. You have a past, uh, you have a a history, like uh, you have a history book, if you will, and in that history book is history of things that have already taken place. But he says, watch this, I told you those things were going to take place from the beginning. He said, before they ever took place, your history, prior to that, was me predicting they would happen. Look back at verse 3. He said, um, uh, I have declared the former things from the beginning, and they went forth out of my mouth, and I showed them, I and uh, I did them suddenly, and they came to pass. So watch this. God said, this is what's going to happen. He said, and then I brought it about, and I made it happen, and it happened suddenly, because God can tell you exactly what He's going to do, and then He can do it. He can bring to pass the prophecy that comes out of his own mouth. We have a God who is not bound by time. He's not surprised by what happens in your life tomorrow. He wasn't surprised by the trial that you went through yesterday. God already lives in your tomorrows while simultaneously living in your todays, while simultaneously living in your yesterdays. God knows you inside and out, and so God is not bound by time. God foreknows. He says this is going to happen and then God makes it happen. What did what was God's foreknowledge of. All right, letter A notice of Israel's hypocrisy, of Israel's hypocrisy. Look with me at verse number one, and let's see what exactly God's talking about here when it comes to the the Israelites. Look at verse number one. Hear ye this, O house of Jacob, which are called by the name of Israel, and are come forth out of the waters of Judah, which swear by the name of the Lord, and make mention of the God of Israel. So they swear by His name. They make mention of God. They give lip service. But look at the rest of the verse. But not in truth. 
nor in righteousness. What's he saying here? You all are talking up a good game. You're acting like a Christian with your lips, but deep down in your heart, truth is not there. There is no truth. There is no righteousness. You're giving lip service to something that is absent from within. Look at verse 2. For they call themselves of the holy city and stay themselves upon the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is His name. They're, they're saying the right things. They're, they're, they're declaring themselves. They're identifying themselves with God, but their heart is far from God. They are not dwelling in truth. By the way, that is hypocrisy. When we outwardly portray ourselves to be one thing while being something else deep down in the chamber of our heart. We act like we're walking in truth, but when no one's watching and we're all alone with our thoughts, we're walking in darkness and in rebellion. God says, I already knew the hypocrisy that you would find yourself into well before it even happened. The Lord's full foreknowledge of Israel's hypocrisy, let her be. Or rather, turn over with me to Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 13. Let me, let me drill down a little bit deeper on this thought of Israel's hypocrisy. God knows when you show up to worship Him, but it's all just action to impress others, and your heart is far from it. Isaiah chapter 1. We looked at this way, way, way back, probably two years ago, when we began our verse-by-verse journey through Isaiah. Look at chapter 1. Look at verse 13. Look at what the prophet tells the people. He says, Bring no more vain oblations. Incense... That means sacrifices. Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with it. It is iniquity, even the solemn meetings. You get together and you have a solemn meeting. You get together for a sacrifice. You're going through the motions of being somber and serious and solemn. He says, I cannot take it any longer. Away with it. I can't do it anymore because... This is being done out of a heart of hypocrisy. 14, your new moons and your anointed feasts, my soul hateth. They are troubling to me. I am weary to bear them. And when ye spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when ye make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Look at 16. Wash you, make you clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do well, seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow, come now and let us reason together. Saith the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be like red like crimson, they shall be as wool. God says you're showing up to the temple. You're going through the motions of, of the sacrifice. You're even having solemn prayer meetings, if you will. But there is a problem, and that problem resides deep down in your heart. Do you think that hypocrisy was just a problem in Isaiah's day? Or do you think that maybe hypocrisy is a problem that can get any of us any any time, anywhere? You know, the Bible talks about the raising up of holy hands. On Sunday morning when we're in the building and it's packed out and we're singing, sometimes God moves on the heart of a person and they raise their hand. I raise my hand sometimes in praise. If God moves in your heart to raise your hand in praise, then raise your hand in praise. But you better not lift up those hands unless they're holy hands. You see, we've got churches today 
filled with people who go to church living like the devil. They show up on Sunday, they hear some emotional song, they stand there, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Then they go back out and they live like the devil. we got people who show up to church at White Oak Baptist Church. We're a little bit more of a dressy church, especially on Sundays. You know, Wednesdays is a little more casual for everybody except me. I'm not a lot of dress down because I'm a preacher, all right? Uh, but, we're, you know, Wednesday's a little more casual. Sundays, we're more of a dress-up type church. Not everyone dresses up, and you're not required to, but many people do. Listen, it's fine to wear a tie to church. I, I wear a tie to church. I'm wearing a tie right now. But if I'm portraying myself to be righteous outwardly while being evil inwardly, God is disgusted. Who do we think we're fooling? We may be fooling each other. We are not fooling the Lord. God says about Israel, I already knew that you were going to be a hypocrite before you even were. Aren't you glad that God loves us anyway? Letter A, the Lord's foreknowledge of Israel's hypocrisy. Letter B, the Lord's foreknowledge of Israel's hard-heartedness. Hard-heartedness. Back at Isaiah 48, look at verse number 4. Because I knew that thou art obstinate, and thy neck is an iron sinew, and thy, and thy brow brass. Oh, I've talked about this before, but that stiff neck. Your, your neck is so stiff, it's though the sinew in your neck is made out of iron. You're, you, you won't budge that neck. You won't uh, uh, turn. You, you won't. And, and I've used the illustration that when I was a small child and I had a bad attitude and my, my dad would be getting on me and he'd say, boy, look at me. And I'd have my head down like this and, and I would kind of look up at him but I wouldn't want to move my neck. And my dad would put his fingers on my chin and he would try and force my head around and I would tighten up that neck. I would stiffen up that neck because my stubborn, sinful heart did not want to look him in the eye because I was wrong and I did not want to face my father. God says, Israel, I'm trying to correct you, but your neck is stiff. It's as though the sinew in your neck is iron. Your brass is, or your brow is made of brass. You're obstinate. You're hard-hearted. Look at verse 5. I have even from the beginning declared it to thee because it came to pass. I showed it thee lest thou shouldest say mine idol uh, have done uh, them. And uh, my graven image and my molten image hath commanded them. Thou hast heard. Uh, see all this and will not ye declare it? I have showed thee the new things from this time, even hidden things. And thou didst not know them. They are created now and not from the beginning, even before the day when thou heardest of them not, lest thou shouldest say, Behold, I knew them. What's God saying here? He's saying, listen, I, I, all the way back in the beginning, verse 3, I told you what was happened and what would happen and I brought it to pass. And now that we're on the other side of both the prediction and the fulfillment, you do not get to point at your idols. You do not get to point at your graven images and say, because of my idols, this happened. He said, whoa, hold on now. Way back here, before it ever happened, I told you what would happen and then I brought it to pass. You don't get to then turn around and say, there's no God in heaven. It happened because of my idolatry. God said, no, no, it didn't happen because your idolatry. It happened because I made it happen. You need to give up that hard heart of stone. How does a person get a hard heart? Where does a hard heart come from? I'm going to tell you where it comes from. You hear a truth from the Word of God, 
and you say, not right now. I'll do it later. Not right now. I'll do it later. Yeah, I know what the preacher preached on, I struggle with, and he showed me right out of the Bible, it's in the Word of God, but I'll get to that later. And you know what I'll get to that later turns into? It turns into you never doing it. And after layer upon layer upon layer upon layer of you telling the Spirit of God, no, 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 that heart becomes hard. I look at a man who works with his hands. He's constantly moving materials. And I see that when he works with wood, he'll get calluses on his hand. You know where a callus comes from? You've torn the skin and it's healed. And you've torn the skin and it's healed. And you've torn the skin and it's healed. And eventually the skin says, I'm tired of getting torn. And so a really thick piece of hard skin grows right there in that spot so that you can't tear it anymore. And some of you, you've been preached at and you've read your Bible and the Spirit of God's poked at you and uh, it, the Spirit of God's torn at you with conviction and instead of actually doing something about it now, you've just grown a hard callus over that heart and you say, you know what, that doesn't bother me anymore. And you've grown hard-hearted. And the amazing thing about God is He knew the hypocrisy and the hard-heartedness well before it even happened. We see the Lord's foreknowledge. Number two, we see the Lord's frustration. The Lord's frustration. God is not pleased with His people over their behavior. He is not pleased with His people over the way that they are behaving. He looks at them and He says, Your behavior is not acceptable. And your behavior is a blot to My name. Look at verse number 9. For My name's sake will I defer My anger... And for my praise will I refrain for thee that I cut thee off. Look down at verse 11. For mine own sake, even for my own sake will I do it. For how should my name be polluted? Oh, oh. As I read that, my heart was torn. How shall my name be polluted, he says. And I will not give my glory unto another. Turn your Bibles over to Psalm 23. While you're turning there, God called Abraham in Genesis 12. He said, I want you to get up and I want you to leave Ur the Chaldees. And I want you to go to a land that I'll show you. And if you'll obey me, I will give you and Sarah a child. And that child I'll, I'll, I'll make into a, a, a great nation. And sure enough, they obeyed. And, and while it was a, a long, windy, up and down roller coaster ride of the journey, eventually God did give Abraham, uh, Abram and Sarai, or Abraham and Sarah a baby. And that baby's name was what? Isaac. And Isaac and Rebekah would have uh, Jacob. And Jacob's name would be changed to Israel. And God would give Israel 12 sons. And from those, uh, th- those children and those descendants, we have the nation of Israel. And God God would say, Israel, you are my people. You belong to me. I'm putting my name on you. You know what it means when God's name is put on a people? It means that their behavior represents their God. And God says to the Israelites, when you misbehave, you give me a bad name. Now, we don't live in the Old Testament. We live in the New Testament. Guess what? The day you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone to save you, you became a child of God or a Christian. You know what Christian means? It means a miniature version of Christ. 
Christian, C-H-R-I-S-T. And when the world looks at you and you act like them, you pollute the name of Christ. When the world looks at you and sees hypocrisy, they say, oh, okay, all right. Oh, how it hurts his reputation. You know, I've shared this before. Uh, in the ten, You pastor long enough, you end up saying everything at some point. It just all just becomes repeated in some way, right? Uh, so, um, obviously, I've probably said all of this before. But, you know, your reputation and your character, they're not the same thing. You know the difference between your reputation and your character? Your reputation is who people think you are. Your character is who God knows that you are. You know, they're not usually the same thing, are they? Usually, for most of us, our reputation is well above our character. People think, oh man, yeah, that guy, man, he's got it all together. He's a super Christian. If people only knew what you thought in your heart when no one else was watching. Man, she's got it all together. Boy, if she could see the text thread with your husband last week. Maybe not so great, huh? Our reputation generally is above our character. But do you know with God, because we represent Him, His character far exceeds his reputation. Because as sinners, we are capable of polluting his name. Look at Psalm 23. Look at verse 1. The psalmist David says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. This phrase is often missed. Look here. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness. Read the rest of the verse with me. For his name's sake. Why does God want to lead you into righteousness? Because it does His name well. When you live righteous and you are righteous on the inside, people look at you and say, that's a Christian right there. That's how a Christian thinks, talks, acts. Uh, That's how a Christian behaves. That is a version of Christ. Boy, something happens at work that doesn't go your way and you maintain a good Christian testimony and you keep your your, your, um, reputation intact by the way you behave and uh, you honor Christ with uh, the way you handle a difficult situation. You go through a very difficult time in your life and you come out of it on the other side and people think, wow, look at the way, how, how did, there's no way that's possible he could handle it that way. People say, it's because he's a Christian, because you represent Christ. Let me tell you a story here. When I was um, a newlywed, um, I had no idea how to match my clothes. None. No clue. All right? I remember we were only been, only been married a few months, me and Angela, and, and we got invited to some some party out in the sunny school get together. You know, I I'm not a go to party that you know like drunken party type guy. It's it's always church stuff. So sunny school party, birthday party for a church member, something. We got invited, and and I come out of the bedroom and I'm I'm ready to go, and Angela looks at me and goes, "You can't wear that." I said, what's wrong with my outfit? What's wrong with this? And she said this to me. She said, the way you dress is a direct reflection on me. You go out dressed like that, people are going to look at me like, what? 
You let him out of the house that way? We got in the car after going to that activity. This was a rough day for me, okay? Had a lot of learning to do as a husband. We got in the car after going to the activity, and my wife was not happy with me. I couldn't figure out what was wrong. And you know, the typical, what's wrong? Nothing. Okay. Obviously something's wrong. And so finally she came out with it. You overate at that party. You ate way too much. I think I got two or three hot dogs or something, you know. And uh, piled my plate high. And She said, the way you behave reflects on me. How many of you understand what she's saying is true? You know what I've learned? I've learned that I need to have some dignity in class because she is the grace, right? And um, I'm not the grace. I struggle sometimes, but I need to have some dignity in class because it's not just me and my reputation, it's her reputation too. You know, um, I do tend to eat a little bit more at a party my wife's not at. I'm just being honest with you, okay? She's there, I back it down a little bit. I back it down a little bit. Because she's there, in the flesh. But do you know that even when she's not there, what I do is still a reflection on her? You may not see God in the flesh, but the world that knows that you're a Christian, everything you do is a reflection of Christ. You lose your cool at work and start to curse? Well, okay. That's, a, that's polluting the name of Christ. Something doesn't go your way and you storm out of the boss's office with an attitude, you are polluting the name of Christ. You step out on your spouse and you run around on your husband or wife, you are polluting the name of Christ. You walk around with a rebellious attitude toward authority, you are polluting the name of Christ. God looks at Israel and says, I've put my name on you corporately as a nation, and you're acting like hypocrites, and you have a hard heart toward correction. He said, it is my uh, love for you. Look back at verse number 9. For my name's sake will I defer mine anger. I'm not just going to cut you off, he says. Uh, And for my praise will I refrain uh, for thee that I cut thee not off. God said, if I did what I wanted to do based on your behavior, I'd just kill all of you. But I'm not going to do that because of my own namesake. Israel is known in the world as God's chosen people when they behave sinfully. It was a poor testimony to the rest of the world of the character of God. When you and I behave poorly, people know that we're Christians, we're associated with God. It is a blight to the name of God. His reputation, let her be, look at Israel's refinement. This is the crux of the Bible study right here. Well, we're doing great on time. Brother Kyle got us to the prayer service a lot faster than I do. So uh, we, uh, we may even get through all the, way, all the way through chapter 48 tonight. Look at verse number 10. Behold, I have refined thee, but not with silver. 
I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. God said instead of just killing you, killing all of you and starting over with someone else, instead as a country, I'm going to place you in the furnace of affliction and I'm going to refine you. If you're taking notes, I encourage you to write this down. All refinement is for the purpose of spiritual growth. All refinement is for the purpose of spiritual growth. Those of you that were here Sunday evening and heard Pastor King's sermon on being crushed, this sermon and that sermon in a lot of ways fit hand in hand. God will allow you to be crushed and refined because that's how He wants to That's the only way He can grow us. Take your Bibles over to Hebrews chapter 12. Hold your place in Isaiah 48. How would, by the way, while you're turning over there, how would God refine Israel? By turning them over to the Babylonians and putting them in captivity for 70 years. I'm just trying to be honest to the text here tonight. I like to make applications that apply to me and you, but to be honest to the text or to be fair with the text, God took the uh, Israelites and instead of just wiping them out, He took them into bondage in Babylon for 70 years. 70 years they sat in captivity. 70 years they sat in misery. 70 years God left them there to be refined. And after 70 years... He set them free. We'll get more into that a little bit later in the Bible study. God does much the same to me and you individually that He did to Israel corporately. He will put us through a furnace of affliction uh, because He's trying to refine us. Now, here's what I have in my notes. Much of the time, the, the furnace of affliction is, much of the time, the punishing hand of God due to sin in our lives. Now, before I read the passage here, here's what I see. Somebody's going through a big problem in their life. Maybe their health is falling apart. Maybe their relationships are falling apart. Maybe their finances are falling apart. Usually those three things are what get touched that really gets our attention. Maybe there's some other trial or struggle in their life. And, and you know what we tend to do? We tend to take the lazy way out. You know what that is? God, it's your fault. Why did you let this happen to me? That's not right. We may not directly say that, but boy, we quit praying and we quit reading our Bible and sometimes we even quit going to church. And you know what we're doing when we stop reading our Bible and praying and going to church? We're shaking our fist at God and saying it's your fault because you've cut off those behaviors that would tighten that relationship with the Lord. You know what the reality is? Is Usually we're going through a hard time because of our own sinful behavior. When, when I'm going through hardships, you know what usually I can do? I usually can look back six months to two years and I can say, you know what, if I hadn't done this sin, I wouldn't be going through this right now. But instead, we're too lazy and we point the finger at other people or we point the finger at God and we blame Him. Look at Hebrews 12, look at verse number 5. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children, my son... Despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth. There's that refinement. Every son whom he receiveth, if ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he 
whom the Father chasteneth not. But if ye be without chastisement, where all, uh, whereof all are partakers, then ye are bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? Hey, listen, God may be giving you a whooping right now. God may be punishing you right now. You can get bitter at God for punishing you, or you can back up and say, I know that your heart, God, is to love me. Look back at verse 6. For whom the Lord loveth, He chasteneth. God does not spank you out of anger or frustration. God does not spank you because He's spiteful and vengeful toward you. No, God swings the paddle of pain and turns up the furnace of affliction because He's trying to bring out the dross of sin in order to make us into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. Oftentimes, if not most of the time, the pain in our life is a result of the punishing hand of God over sin in our life and sin that we've done wrong and God is trying to bring us to a point of repentance and forgiveness. So hear what I'm about to say. Hear what I'm about to say. Any time that I've ever had to punish a child, I'm looking for a handful of things in the process. And the reason why I share this is because God's looking for the same thing out of me and you. I look for an admittance of wrongdoing both intellectually and emotionally. There's an emotional admittance that I have done wrong. And then there is the punishment distributed and then there is godly sorrow that works repentance. Until my child has showed me that they're sorrowful over their sin and truly repentant over their wrongdoing, then we've got to go back and repeat the process of punishment until we get there. And I think sometimes what happens to me and you is we end up in this loop of furnace affliction where God says, boy, you're just hard-headed. You've got a neck with the iron of sinew, and, and you're hard-hearted, and you're hard-headed, and you're a hypocrite. And you know what? I'm going to punish you, and you're going to blame me. So I'm going to punish you some more, and then you're going to blame me. And I'm going to punish you some more, and you're going to blame me. And God says, we're going to keep going through this process until you humble your heart, and you own up to your sin, and you confess it, and guardly sorrow work with repentance, and then we will restore you, and on with life we go. And sometimes we deal with health crisis after health crisis after health crisis. And financial struggle after financial struggle after financial struggle. And relationship struggle, relationship struggle. And it's, God, I can't catch a break. It's problem after problem after problem. But you've not gotten on your knees and confessed your sins and told the Lord you're sorry and actually made real change because your heart is hard. And God says, we'll just keep going through the process. I'll just keep refining you until you quit being so stubborn. But that is not always the reason why God puts us in the furnace of affliction. Turn over to 1 Peter 1. You're in Hebrews. Hebrews, James, 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1, two books to the right. Sometimes God puts us in the furnace of affliction for a totally different reason. Sometimes it's not to punish us over our sin. Sometimes it's to strengthen our faith. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1 and look at verse number 5. It says, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. By the way, you don't keep your salvation. The Lord keeps your salvation. 
It's His power that keeps you saved, not your good works that keep you saved. Your good works don't earn your salvation. Your good works can't keep your salvation. It's kept by God in heaven. All right, look at verse 6. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though uh, now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen ye love, and whom though now ye see him not, yet believing ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. God says, sometimes I put people in the furnace of affliction because I'm not necessarily punishing them. I'm trying to refine their faith. I'm trying to purify their faith. I'm trying to stretch their faith. I think of Abraham. He had reached a point of spiritual maturity where he had made his mistakes with uh, Hagar and Ishmael and, and gotten past that. And now he's uh, back with uh, his wife and uh, he's got uh, 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 Isaac who's probably somewhere in the age, age range of 30 years old. And life is good. He is settled into a cadence, rhythm, and flow. And one day he wakes up and God says to him, Genesis 22, he says, Hey Abraham, take thy son, thine only son whom thou lovest, and take him on a trip to a place that I'll show thee. And take Take him up to the top of a mountain and lay him on an altar and and plunge a knife into him and kill him. You want me to do... You want me to do what? Hey, um, Abraham. Yes, Lord. Do, do Do you trust me? Yes, Lord. Three days. Can you imagine what was running through his head? All three days he's on this journey with his son. Can you imagine those three nights that he laid under the stars in a tent and he tossed and turned wondering, God, what are you doing? How are you going to make this happen? And while there was no doubt, doubt in his heart, his faith was greater than his doubt. And he laid the wood on the back of Isaac and up the mountain they went. And Abraham, or rather Isaac, looks at his dad and he says, we've got the fire and we've got the wood, but where is the sacrifice? And God looks down at his son, or rather Abraham looks down at his son and he says, God will provide himself a lamb. God will provide himself a lamb. Do you know there was probably a quiver on his lip and a tear in his eye as he said to his son, God will provide himself a lamb. And then he tied him up and he laid him on the altar and he took that knife and he started down and an angel stopped his hand and said, All right, Abraham, you've passed the test. You've passed the test. I now know that you trust me more than you doubt me. You know, sometimes God's going to put you in a spot where your faith is tested in an extreme way. He's going to put you in the furnace of affliction because He's testing your faith. I think about Job. And all Job's story has almost become cliche at this point. Can I just tell you, I'm speaking as a father here who loves my kids deeply. If I'm Job, I don't care about my wealth. You can have all my money. But my kids? But my ten children? You had to take my kids? Listen, if I got a phone call tomorrow that... Uh, my kid's carpool uh, was in an accident and my two children were dead on arrival at the hospital. 
I would be so broken as a father. Can you imagine the servant that came right up and said, your kids were in the house, they're having a party, and the wind came and knocked the house down, and all your children are dead? And the Bible says that Job fell on his knees, and he worshipped the Lord, and he said, naked came I in this world, naked will I leave, blessed be the name of the Lord. Sometimes God puts us in the furnace of affliction because He just wants to purify our faith. Do you know what it says to a world when you go through a furnace of affliction and you maintain a mature Christian spirit and you praise the Lord and you worship the Lord? Do you know what that does for the reputation of your God to the world? Oh, they want to get them some of that. Ultimately, God is refining you because you carry His name, Christian, and His reputation is on the line. We see God's foreknowledge. We see God's frustration. Number three, we see Israel's foundation. Israel's foundation. Look at verse number... uh, Let me give you letter A and letter B here. Letter A, first notice His creation of the world. God's just going to remind Israel as they stray from Him who He is and what He's done for them and how powerful He is. Look at verse number 12. Hearken unto me, O Jacob and Israel, uh, my called, I am He, I am first, I also am the last. Now, can I just say this about God being the first and the last? If God is... If God is someone you love and adore and worship, you find great comfort in the fact that He is the first and He is the last. He, listen, He is before you. He will be after you. He completely surrounds you. And if you love God, you feel surrounded by His love. But if you have a problem with God, let me tell you, the thought of Him being first and last is not something that excites you. Because the wrath of God is both first and last around your poor behavior. Look at verse number Look at verse number 13. Mine hand also hath laid the foundation of the earth and my right hand hath spanned the heavens. When I call them they stand up together. Wow. Now I've shared this with you before. A span is the distance from your thumb to your pinky. So God says, "Let me show you how big my 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 hand is. I measure the universe the stars of the universe that are uh, uh, millions and billions of light years apart, I measure them like this. Just like that. And he says, and when I command, they all stand up at the same time. Someone said, well, pastor, if you believe that the earth is only 6,000 years old, then how can we see light that are billions of light years away? And the answer is really simple. The Bible explains in a few places that God created the stars right next to the earth. And then the Bible says He stretched out the heavens. How big are the hands of God? He took the stars and He stretched them out, leaving their light path in place. And He left them in perfect order, in perfect place, billions of light years apart, billions of light years from us, and we can see their light. His creation of the world. By the way, it is pointless to rebel against a God who's so powerful He can create the heavens and the earth with His voice. Why would you do it? You're going to lose every time. You're going to lose every time. Why rebel? By the way, you ever had a child who's just stubborn and you think to yourself, I can be more stubborn than you? How many know what I'm talking about? Okay? Watch. 
ain't nobody here more stubborn than God. You think, I'm going to out-stubborn God. I'm going to get my way. Oh, no, you are not. Letter B, His command of the nations. Verse 14. All ye assemble yourselves and hear, which among them hath declared these things. The Lord hath loved him. He will do his pleasure on Babylon. Um, uh, and his arm shall be on the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken. Yea, I have chosen him. I have brought him, and he shall make his way prosperous. What, uh, what, what is being said here? God is saying, I am the one that brings up nations and puts down nations. I talked about uh, a master who says, Here, Fido, right, last week. And Fido jumps up, and when God orders, Fido, or the master uh, orders, Fido uh, goes down. And God can say, here Babylon, come on up here, come on up here, be strong, be powerful. Go over and take out uh, uh, Israel, take them into captivity. All right, after seven years, down Babylon, down boy. And Babylon is done because God is greater than the nations. We look at our superpower, America, and we think, oh, America is this, America is that, and we've got all these weapons, and we spend more on defense than the other nation. God can flick us off the map just like you and I would flick a flea away from us. God is greater uh, than all of that. He commands the nations to do as He so pleases. And just as God used Babylon as a fire of affliction to refine the Israelites, God can command anything He wants to be the fire of affliction that refines our faith. I look at people who have you know, lots of money in the bank. Tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars in the bank. And you know what happens when you got lots of money in the bank? I'm guessing this, okay, because this isn't me. All right, just to be clear. You know what happens when people have lots of money in the bank? They stop putting their faith in God to get them by, and they start putting their faith in their bank account to get them by. You know what happens to Americans when we live in a country with a world-class Healthcare system, and our healthcare system is not perfect. Our healthcare system is broken in a lot of ways. But I'll tell you this I've been to third world countries, we've got a pretty good healthcare system. You know what happens when you live in a nation with a really good healthcare system? You have a problem with your health. Your first inclination is not to get on your knees and pray, your first inclination is to pick up the phone and call the doctor. Now, I'm all for doctors. And I believe God works through doctors to help get us better. My wife's having surgery next week. I clearly believe in the hospital system, all right? But we should put our faith in God before we put our faith in a pill. You know what God can do? God can take that million dollars and evaporate it just like that. God can take that health, no matter what healthcare system you have, and He can take it away just like that and leave doctors confounded and confused over how to help you. Oh, I've got a great relationship with my family. You watch them drop one at a time, whether it's to death or poor relationships, and all of a sudden you're all alone in this world. Boy, you better not put your faith in anything but the Lord. God can take anything He wants and turn it into a furnace of affliction. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 says, Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you're in heaviness through manifold temptation, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found into praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus. Now, we're running out of time, but I just want to make this last little thought. Uh, well, you know what? Let's move on. Number four. Uh, number four. I want to get through the outline here before we go home tonight. Number four. Notice Israel's father. Israel's father. 
Letter A, notice his paternal offering. His paternal offering. Look at verse number 16. Come ye now unto me, hear ye this. I have not, not spoken in secret from the beginning, from the time that it was. There am I, and now the Lord God in His Spirit hath sent me. That's Isaiah speaking. Look at verse 17. Here we see the behavior of a father toward a child. Thus saith the Lord thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord thy God, look here, which teacheth thee to profit, which leadeth thee by the way that thou shouldest go. I put down in my notes here in verse 17, we find that God the Father is the Redeemer, He is the teacher, and He is the leader. You see those three things in verse 17? He is the Redeemer, He is the teacher, and He is the leader. These are the behaviors of a Parent, a parent, they redeem their child when their child has lost their way. They step in and say, here I am to help get you back, uh, out, uh, uh, back on your feet and back down the right path. They are, uh, they are a person who teaches their child uh, how to profit in life. Look back at verse 17. It says there, I am the Lord thy God which teacheth thee to profit. You know what, parents? Good thing for you to do is to teach your kids personal finance before they leave home. Teach them how to manage their money. Teach them how to manage a bank account. Teach them how to balance a checkbook. And if not balance a checkbook, to keep the, you know, online bank account app out of the red. Amen? Uh, teach your children how to manage money. Teach them how to pay their bills on time. Teach them how to profit. Teach them a skill where they can go out and actually be equipped uh, to make it in life. And we see here that, that uh, they, are, uh, they are there to lead their child down the path that they should go. Listen, children are simple and they lose the path sometimes and mom and dad have to be right there to pull them back on the path and say, that's the direction you're supposed to go. Israel's father, we see his paternal offering, letter B. We see his promise to the obedient. Look at verse 18. I love this. Look at verse 18. Oh, that thou hadst hearkened to my commandments, then have thy peace been as a river and thy righteousness as the waves of the sea. Look at verse 19. Thy seed also hath been as the sand, and the offspring of thy bowels, like the gravel thereof, his name shall not have been cut off, nor destroyed from before me. God is saying to the Israelites, before they're even carried away into Babylon, He's saying, listen, He's saying, had you just behaved yourself, had you just trusted me, had you just followed me, had you just done as I had told you, you would have never ended up in the furnace of affliction to begin with. You know what? When we obey the Lord, we keep ourselves out of a whole lot of trouble. I told the Lord this a long time ago. I said, Lord, you can bring any trouble or trial into my life uh, anytime you so choose because I trust your hand and I trust your heart. But I never want you to have to bring a trial into my life because of my own stubbornness and disobedience. If you're going to bring a trial into my life, bring one in there because you're trying to purify my faith, not because you're trying to punish me because I'm doing wrong. God promises to, uh, to, that you, you will have peace like a river. He promises your righteousnesses will be as the waves of the sea. Number five, lastly, notice Israel's freedom. Letter A, we see their future rejoicing. Their future rejoicing. Verse 20 says, Go ye forth of Babylon. This is the end of the... By the way, I, before we read this, understand this was written 
again, a hundred plus years before Babylon would ever even be a great nation, before Babylon would ever take into captivity Israel, and then it was 170 plus years before they would ever be freed from Babylon. This is amazing prophecy. So look at verse 20. Go ye forth of Babylon, flee ye from the Chaldeans with the voice of singing. Declare ye, tell this, utter it even to the ends of the earth. Say ye, the Lord hath redeemed his servant Jacob. And they thirsted not when he led them through the deserts. He caused the waters, this is metaphorical uh, in this part of the Bible, to flow out of the rock for them. He claved the rock also and the waters gushed out. Pointing back to what happened in the wilderness, God took care of them in a metaphorical way in their time in captivity in Babylon. And we know that there was rejoicing when they left. We're not going to take the time to do it, but over in Ezra chapter 3, verses 10 through 13, we find the story of the foundation of the second temple being laid and the people rejoicing over this having been built, but yet um, uh, some weeping because they remembered yet the first temple. What happens when we do things God's way? Well... We get to rejoice. Let her be. Lastly, notice their firm reminder. Look at verse 22. And this is how the chapter ends. It ends on a very somber note. I want us all to read it together, if we can. Look at verse 22. Let's all read it out loud. Ready? There is no peace, saith the Lord, unto the wicked. One more time. There is no peace, saith the Lord, unto the wicked. You want to walk in wickedness you're going to live in the furnace of affliction because there is no peace to them who are wicked. I don't know about you. I don't want the furnace of affliction because of God's hand of punishment. I want to walk in peace. I want the waves of righteousness. I want the river of peace. Let's not put ourselves unnecessarily into the furnace of affliction. Amen? Let's let God bring those times into our life as He seems fit to purify our faith, not to correct us when we're being obstinate in sin. Let's bow our heads where we are. Every head bowed, every eye closed. We're not going to have a prolonged invitation, but why don't you ask God right now to show you where maybe you have a stubborn heart. Why don't you ask God right now to show you where you have a callus that's grown over your heart. Ask Him to give you a heart that's tender toward authority, ultimately toward God. 